You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. It's really easy to give God control of things that are easy or not that big of a deal, but man, I'll tell you, when it comes down to those areas or those issues um, where you just feel like you got a lot invested, there's a lot riding on which way you go on that, it is so hard sometimes just to give God control of those areas uh, of your life. And sometimes you kind of want to get in there and kind of co-pilot with God, you know, kind of help him in making uh, those right decisions. I think we all can just attest to those areas and times in our lives where we kind of do that uh, with God. And last week we started a new series called Ready, Set, God. And uh, the premise of the series is, is that most of us have had, you know, situations, we've had circumstances, we've had maybe times and seasons and chapters uh, in our lives where we, uh, you know, we feel, and again, I know we don't want to go based off of feelings, but we just have very strong feelings in the midst of what we're going through that there just are times where God just sometimes seems inattentive or uncooperative, absent uh, or silent. As a matter of fact, Many of you may not know this, but there's actually a period in church history, about 400 years, and theologians refer to that 400 years as the silence of God. Now, the 400 years of the silence of God, it refers to the time between the Old Testament and the New Testaments, and it's a period of time in which God did not speak to the Jewish people. The 400 years of God's silence, it began with the warning that closed the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 5, uh, 4, beginning in verse 5. And this is the final message that God says to the Jewish people, and then he just goes silent for 400 years. And there he said, behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the father to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And after that, 400 years of silence in which God said nothing to the Jewish people. And that silence was finally broken with the coming of John the Baptist, the Messiah's forerunner. And we talked about him last week. Now, thankfully, that is a one-time occurrence, and today we have the Word of God, we have the Holy Spirit, who's always speaking. But again, let's just be honest. There are still those moments, those times in our lives or in the lives of those who are closest to us where, again, our earnest pleas before God sometimes just go unanswered. Or when God does finally speak or move, it kind of just feels like, you know, 400 years, you know, we've waited. And it's during, again, those times uh, when God seems to kind of be inattentive, uncooperative, absent, or silent, that it can really be a challenge to our faith. You know, it can be during those times of waiting upon God that our hope and our confidence in God can begin to erode and crumble if we're not careful. We often make the mistake of thinking that God's inactivity, that, you know, that may be a sign of God's displeasure for us. Sometimes we think that maybe God's not speaking to me because he's punishing me for something that I did or didn't do. And we begin to think if God is silent, 
then maybe God is absent. Worse yet, if God isn't engaging in my circumstances, if God isn't intervening in my situation, maybe God doesn't even exist. And what I hope we'll discover, again, as we're walking through the series together, is that we're all going to have times where it just feels like we're wandering in the wilderness. We can walk through dry times. We can go through tough seasons, again, where we just feel distant from God. We can go through times and stages and chapters of our life where God does seem kind of uncooperative, inattentive, and late. And yet in the midst of all of that, we can still maintain, and I say grow, in our faith because God isn't inattentive. God is never uncooperative, and God is not absent, nor is he never late. That as we go through difficult times, those rough patches, we can know beyond a doubt that God is with us, he is for us, his plans and purposes for our lives is to bless us, and that we don't have to associate the difficulties of life with the character of God. So last week, we started by looking at the first of three men. I just want to remind you again, these are men in the New Testament who God passionately loved. God knew their names, and God was intimately aware of their circumstances, and yet each of these three men may have been tempted at some point in their ordeal to think that maybe God was being inattentive or uncooperative, absent or late. And last week we looked at John the Baptist. Today we're gonna talk about another man that if you've grown up in the church or are familiar with your Bible, you've probably heard his name almost as much as Jesus. This man is first introduced to us in the New Testament as Saul, who later goes on to become known as the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul was a man who took the gospel message, he took the truth of Jesus outside of Jerusalem, Judea, and he just began to spread it all over the world. And Paul spent 20 years of his adult life getting on ships and traveling all around the Mediterranean Rim, oftentimes into very hostile environments. And he was introducing this idea that God had done something so unique in the world, something unprecedented in the world by sending his son Jesus Christ into this world to die for the sins of mankind. And throughout his time as a servant of Christ, Paul encountered many, many difficulties, trials. Paul was shipwrecked. He had been beaten multiple times. He was stoned. He was put in prison. He was bitten by a snake, almost drowned. Just to name a few of Paul's trials, persecutions, and sufferings. And yet, throughout all of those difficulties, God knew Paul's name. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. Jesus clearly called out Saul's name twice in his encounter with Saul on the road to Damascus. So God was very aware of the circumstances, the situations, not just in Saul's life, but also when he became Paul. And God called him to this very, very specific task. And God did many miracles through the apostle Paul. 
And for 20 years of Paul's adult life, he does nothing but follows and serves God faithfully. Not perfectly, but faithfully. Paul became a Christ follower about three or four years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Before that, as many of you know, he actually persecuted the church as Saul. This man Saul, again, his goal was to stomp out this newfound faith in the resurrected Christ to kind of just crush it once and for all. You remember one day as he's traveling to Damascus, Saul encounters the risen Christ, and in that he becomes a follower. And once Saul converted to Christianity, he went from vehemently persecuting the church to planting churches, to pastoring and preaching and doing all that he could do to proclaim the lordship and power of Jesus Christ, to heal, to forgive, to save, and to redeem. And following his conversion, Paul spent a few years training. Some of that time he spent with Peter, some of that time with James, the brother of Jesus, And then for 20 years, Paul launched into the world to take the message of Jesus Christ to places it had never been taken before. Now at some point, after Paul becomes a Christ follower, it is apparent from Scripture that he begins to battle with some kind of a physical and or a spiritual struggle or attack. In fact, it was such a huge deal that it had the potential to become an obstacle for Paul to do the very thing God had called him to do. And as soon as Paul kind of realizes whatever he was dealing with was just going to keep flaring up, it was just going to keep occurring, he did exactly what you and I would do. He began to ask God to remove it, and God told him no, not once, but three times. I don't care how much faith you have, I don't care how long you pray. I don't care how obedient you are. I don't care how long you fast. I don't care how long you promise. I don't care how you bargain. The answer to this one, Paul, whom I love. Paul, I know your name. Paul, I called you and I am using you mightily. Paul, you're going to be famous. People are going to name their kids after you, but the answer is no, no, no. The Apostle Paul wrote many letters, letters to churches that he started. They make up over the half of the New Testament, and yet for all of that, God's response to him is no, no, no. So let's get more into what's happening leading up to this response to Paul from God. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Christians in Corinth. In this particular letter, Paul is describing to them his experience, his story. And one of those experiences that Paul shares with them in 2 Corinthians is that God had been giving him these incredible these profound revelations into the mystery of God. And he was being led to share those with the rest of the church. And in order to keep him humble, God allowed him to experience a particular kind of affliction. So I want to just pick it up in chapter 12, verse 7, midway through verse 7. And there it says, in order 
to keep me from being conceited, again, because of these amazing, profound revelations, these insights into the mystery of God, he said, I was given a thorn in my flesh. Now, many of you have used that terminology, thorn in the flesh, for years and years. Maybe you've used that to describe an ex-spouse, your boss, your mother-in-law, your father-in-law, the IRS. Maybe you've used that term to describe your neighbor, your teacher, whoever it may be. You said, this person, they're just a thorn in my flesh. Some of you used other, maybe more colorful terminology. You said they were a pain in the backside of the lower regions. Same thing. Didn't even know you were quoting scripture. This is where that came from, a thorn in my flesh, a pain in my side. And in Paul's case, this thorn in the flesh, it literally becomes a constant source of irritation. It just seems to have followed him wherever he went. And Paul goes on in verse 7 to identify this thorn in the flesh as a messenger of Satan to torment me. I just think that's an interesting word there. That God would allow something, that God would give something that would be a source of torment to Paul. Again, this goes against many of our theologies, doesn't it? Oh, God wants to bless me. And he does. But you look in this particular instance, God gives him a thorn in the flesh for the very purpose of it tormenting him. These are Paul's words. Paul says whatever this thorn was, and there's lots of theories out there as to what this thorn in his flesh was. Paul says it was so awful that it tormented me. That is probably every single day, every single trip, every time he gets on a ship, every time he gets off a ship, every time he had to stay with someone, every time he got up to speak, every time he was writing one of those infamous letters to his churches, there was this constant reoccurring torment to him. Now some people think it might have had to do something with his eyes. There are scriptures in the New Testament where it is suggested that Paul struggled with difficulties pertaining to his eyesight. Most biblical scholars believe that many of Paul's letters in the New Testament were dictated, that Paul spoke and somebody else actually did the writing. For example, in Galatians 6.11, Paul says, look at how large the letters in these words are because I'm writing this myself. There the implication being that someone else may have written the majority of the book of Galatians as Paul spoke, and then in order to maybe emphasize a certain point or to drive a certain point home, Paul would write the next few words or sentences, again, as a way to kind of highlight something Paul's trying to get across. It's also believed that Paul used larger letters because he just had a harder time seeing standard, regular letters. Also in Galatians 4.15, Paul refers to his eyes again, saying, I can testify that. If you could have done so, you would have torn your eyes out and given them to me. Again, the implication being that Paul had such bad eyes that if others could trade their good eyes for his bad eyes, they would. Again, we don't know that that was the case for sure. It's also believed by some theologians that the thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, they were religious Jewish leaders like the Pharisees or the chief priest. 
And they would kind of follow Paul wherever he would go, and they would just stir up trouble for Paul. There's many places in Scripture where it talks about all the trouble the religious leaders created for Paul because of the message of the gospel he was preaching. Paul would go places and he would tell people that it was no longer necessary to be circumcised as the Old Testament Jewish law prescribed in order to inherit God's salvation. Paul was teaching salvation came by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. No longer was circumcision necessary. No longer was it necessary to keep all of the laws of the Mosaic law. So these Jewish leaders, they would kind of just follow Paul wherever he went, and they would tell these new believers in order to be saved, they had to be circumcised in accordance with the law, that they had to follow all of the laws of God in order to be right with God. And so they just followed Paul all around trying to undo the work of God that Paul was doing. So some theologians believe this is the thorn in Paul's flesh that messenger of Satan. Regardless of what it was, the point here is, this thorn in the flesh is just a constant torment to Paul everywhere he went and every place he tried to do ministry. So in verse eight, Paul does what we would all do if we were in Paul's shoes. Paul says three times, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Now imagine this. Here, here's this guy who has been called by God to do one of the most important things anyone can be doing in that generation. And at the end of the day, by all accounts, Paul was successful at what he did. So all he's saying, and again, we all feel this way, it's like, God, I am asking you to do what I have seen you do for other people just take it away. Just relieve me of this. God, I'm asking you to do what I have seen you do for so many other people. Take this away. Get rid of this. God, I could do so much more for you and for your kingdom if I didn't have to deal with this. So just take it away. And all of us would ask God to do the same thing. In fact, Paul says, he pleaded with God three times. Now hear me clearly on this. This doesn't mean that Paul prayed for five minutes on Monday afternoon, five minutes Tuesday afternoon, skipped Wednesday, prayed five minutes again on Thursday afternoon and said, oh, what the heck, I tried, it's not gonna happen. No, no, you need to understand these are seasons of prayer that when things got really, really bad, and whenever this kind of thing flared up, he thought, I'm just not gonna be able to go on, that at three times, three seasons, in this 20-year period, he just pleaded with God. And I think these pleadings, I think they were day and night pleadings. I think he prayed and fasted. It got so bad, he didn't just ask God. It says he pleaded with God, not just once, but three times. And in spite of all of that, God said no. In fact, Paul goes on, and in verse 9, but he, God, said to me, 
Let me just stop here and say this. I think this would be a relief to many of us. That you would just hear something from God. Even no would be encouraging, right? Because to hear God say no means God knows you're alive. God knows he's heard your prayer. God knows you're in trouble. God knows what you need. I mean, just to hear anything, to get any kind of a response from God, even if it's no, would be an encouragement. I think one of the frustrations for many of us is oftentimes we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray and we ask and we ask and we ask and we ask and we bargain and we bargain and we bargain and manipulate and promise and do all of the different things we think we need to do and we hear nothing. Yet in Paul's case, he actually got an answer. And the response Paul got back from God was not only a response to him, but it also has the potential and power to say something to us if we have the wisdom to hear it. Verse 9, but he, God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. The answer to your prayer is no, but my grace is sufficient for you. I'm not going to give you what you're asking for, but my grace is sufficient for you. I am not going to take away what you want taken away, but my grace is sufficient for you. You're going to have to go another season of your life dealing with this, but my grace is sufficient for you. Now, I want you to understand, grace in this context, it's simply the ability to put one foot in front of the other. Grace is the ability to get up and to make it through another day. Grace is the ability to go to work and endure it one more time. Grace is the ability to come home in the afternoon to the unknown. Grace is the ability to keep on going in spite of the fact nothing around you has changed. To find the energy, to find the strength, to find the faith, to keep on moving in the direction that God would have you move. So God says to the Apostle Paul, whom he loved, whom he knew, whom he was interested intricately and intimately aware of his circumstances. I am not going to remove this problem, this difficulty, this struggle, this battle, but I'll tell you what I am going to do. I'm going to give you the strength to keep going forward with it. My grace is sufficient for you. It's adequate. It's actually more than enough for you. Then look at this next statement in verse 9. For my power is made perfect. Now, that in the Greek, that means maturity. It's coming to full fruition. It's totally exploited, is what that means. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, here's the thing. None of us in this room would sign up for this. You want to hear our version of this? 
We want to be the guy in the end zone with the football under one arm and our finger pointed in the air and our other hand giving God the glory as we make the winning touchdown, right? We want to be the woman who's standing on the stage of the voice, drawing a standing ovation for her performance and giving all of the glory for her success to Jesus Christ. See, we're all about giving glory to God for our strengths, but we don't want God to leverage his glory out of our weakness. We want God to leverage. We want God to get his glory out of our talent, out of our accomplishments, out of our strength, out of our ability. I mean, we want to win salesman of the year, and we want to stand up there behind the podium, and we want to say a few things. We're holding our plaque, our little you know, statue, our little piece of glass, and we say, I want to thank all my associates. I want to thank the company. But last but not least, I want to thank my Father in heaven. If it wasn't for God, I wouldn't be here today. Everybody's there, your spouse, your kids, everyone's so proud of you. We want God to get glory from us, but we don't want him to leverage our weakness. We want him to leverage our strength, our ability, our talent, And we'll be oh so quick to give God all the glory and all the credit for our talent, all the glory for our opportunities, all the glory for our ability to sell things, right? We want the Oscar, we want the Emmy, we want to be songwriter of the year, we want to have the album of the year, and we want everybody to pay attention to us. And after we thank our producers and all the people that helped us get there, we want to be the one to say, and I just want to thank my Father, my Savior Jesus Christ for giving me the talent, for getting me here to this place. And all the Christians are like, woohoo! And I'm like you, I love it when famous, successful people give God credit and give Jesus credit. I love it, and I want to be one of those, don't you? God, leverage my success. God, put me in the spotlight. God, use my abilities, use my talents. And when you do, God, I'm just going to give you all of the credit and the glory. And God does that sometimes. Other times, God says, no, I'm not going to leverage your success. I'm not going to leverage the skill I've given you. In this instance, I'm not going to use your abilities and I'm not going to use the talents I gave you. In this particular circumstance and situation, I'm going to leverage your weakness. I'm going to use your inability. I'm going to leverage your lack of opportunity. And I'm going to use what some people would define as failure. I'm going to get glory from you, but I'm going to do it on the stage of your weakness, not your strength. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. 
See, the good news is we don't get to choose because none of us would choose this. So let me ask you a question. Isn't it true, if you're a Christian especially, isn't it true as a Christian when you meet another Christian that has a life circumstance or they're going through a season in life that kind of just makes you shudder? That's facing a life circumstance that's dealing with a battle and you kind of walk away from that going, God, I don't want that. God, I am so glad that is them and not me. You walk away from that and you think, I don't know how I could ever deal with that. I don't know how I would manage with that in my home. I don't know how I would manage with that kind of marriage. I don't know how I would deal with that kind of boss. I don't know how I would deal with that kind of financial setback. I don't know how I would deal with that. And thank God it's them and not me. And then you kind of begin to dig a little beneath the surface and you find some people and it just kind of seems like God has said no to their request. And yet in the midst of all of that, you find there is such peace and contentment. And you talk to them long enough and eventually they'll say something like, you know what, in spite of all that I've been going through, the struggles, I have found that God's grace is more than sufficient for me. That somehow, for some reason, God has chosen not to take this away from me. Rather, God has chosen to showcase his strength, his power in the midst of my weakness. Honestly, aren't those some of the most impressive Christians you've ever met in your life? The people that move you, the people that move me, the people whose stories just seem to drive our faith to a whole new level. Isn't it the people who God has chosen to showcase his strength, not in their talent and opportunity and success, but he's chosen to showcase his strength in their weakness? Aren't those the people that kind of just make you scratch your head and go, there has to be a God. There's no other explanation for this. So here's a heads up if it's in your future. Here's an explanation if it's in your past. And I want to offer you some comfort if it's your current situation. God will. God has. And God is going to showcase his strength in your weakness and in my weakness if we will learn to take no for an answer. Knowing it has nothing to do with his love for you, knowing it has nothing to do with his compassion towards you, nothing to do with his presence in your life. In fact, his strength in your weakness is his presence in your life. And this is what enables Paul to go on in verse 9. And he says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Ever been around people that just boast about their weaknesses? Paul says, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Oh, we're good at boasting about our strengths. But we're not so 
vulnerable to boast about our weaknesses, that the power of Christ may dwell in us. I mean, do you think Paul's just making this up? I mean, is this a statement of Paul just kind of giving in? Paul's kind of giving up here? I mean, who would say that? But he continues on in verse 10. He says, therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions, with difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You ever met anybody like that? Aren't they the most incredible, impressive Christians that kind of just take your breath away? Sometimes God says no. But when God says no, he says yes. No, I'm not going to change your circumstances. No, I'm not going to fix that. No, I'm not going to make them change their mind. No, I'm not going to do that. But in the meantime, while you wait and while you pray, while God works on them, while God works through other people, in the meantime, until then, my grace is sufficient for you. Let me just finish up here with a few quick points. First, we have the permission God has given us permission to ask him to remove our thorns. That's the good news. It's not a lack of faith, and it doesn't go against the will of God to ask him to remove your thorns, whatever or whoever they may be. The second point is this. God has, you have the freedom, you have the opportunity, you have his permission to ask, but God also has the freedom, the opportunity, and the authority to say no. You have permission to ask, just like the Apostle Paul, God has the authority and the ability to say no. Number three, God may choose to showcase his power and his strength on the stage of our weakness, and I want you to underline this, and it may never change. It may never change. Some things may never get better. Some things may never work out. Some things may never be reconciled. And some things may never come back together. But His grace is sufficient for you. And it's not a lack of reflection, and it's not a reflection of God's concern or lack of concern for you. It is his opportunity to showcase his strength in the midst of your weakness. Number four, you cannot and you will not experience God's sustaining grace while resisting his will. In other words, you can't refuse to take no for an answer and at the same time experience God's grace as being sufficient for you. Here's the thing. You'll either focus, you'll get obsessed on his no, and over time you'll become frustrated, depressed, bitter, and resentful. I see this all the time in Christians who refuse to take no from God for an answer. Or you will receive his no and then move on to discover and experience his grace that is sufficient for you. But you can't do both. 
sustaining, all-sufficient grace begins with, not my will, but your will be done. Sustaining all-sufficient grace begins with the prayer that our Savior prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane when he kind of prayed a similar rendition of what the Apostle Paul said when Jesus said, Father, I don't want to have to drink this cup, the cup of death, the cup of crucifixion. Here's what I want. Here's what I don't want. Here's what I would like you to do. But now that you know what I want, Now that you know what I would like for you to do differently, not my will, but your will be done. And into that gap between what I want and what God has decided to do, into the gap between what I think God owes me, what I deserve, what it seems like God does for everybody else, and what God chooses to do you will find sufficient, all-sustaining, all-empowering grace, the very power, the very presence of God. But you will never experience it. I will never experience it. We will never experience it as long as we're striving and resisting and arguing God's no. God's sustaining, all-sufficient grace begins when we say, if this is what you've chosen for me, if you have chosen to showcase your strength in my weakness, your will be done. I'm trusting you for your strength and your empowerment to do what I just don't have the strength to do on my own. Because I sincerely trust and I believe, God, your grace is sufficient for me. God's grace is sufficient for you. In my weakness, God has the power and the potential to show himself strong on your behalf. Amen? Let's stand together this morning. As I was working through the message um, this week, one of the things, and I kind of highlighted it for you, it really was more of a highlight for me. And that is, is that there sometimes there are just some weaknesses that we experience in life. And sometimes those weaknesses will never change. God may never, ever intervene. God may never, ever take it away. God may never, ever change it. God may leave it there purposely so that as we lean into that weakness we are experiencing, it allows God to show himself, to reveal himself as our strength, that his power would be made perfect in our weakness. If God were to remove that, it may cause us to pull away from that. So in order to keep us tethered to his strength, to his power, oftentimes God will leave those weaknesses in place. And I I don't know, but we get no indication in Scripture that Paul was ever released from that weakness. The other thing is, is I know for me, and so many people came up to me after first service that were... uh, struggling with addictions, and they said, you don't know what it is to battle 
day after day after day with that addiction. And I said, you're right. I mean, I deal with other weaknesses, other areas. I can't say that I feel those weaknesses in that way every day. But I understand. And I said, that's why it's so important for you to understand that God's grace is sufficient for you this day. Don't worry about tomorrow. When you get to tomorrow, God's grace will be sufficient for you tomorrow. So I, I just prayed with this uh, individual. And I just want to pray for you this morning. If you kind of find yourself in that place this morning, and maybe that area or areas of weakness for you this morning, maybe it is just so prevalent. It's so heavy. It, 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 it feels like what Paul says, you feel like it's just tormenting you. This is, again, is where we have that opportunity to step into and just kind of to lean into that grace that is so sufficient because what we will find when we do that is, again, in, in our weakness, we're going to find his power. We're going to find his strength. So, Father, I just pray for anyone and everyone here this morning who, like so many people in first service, were just sharing how real how difficult that struggle feels to them on a day-to-day -day basis. And God, how they can just feel that, that, that sense of torment that Paul mentions there. So Father, I just pray for people that are here this morning that maybe feel that weakness to that depth, to that degree. Father, I just pray, Lord, that you once again would just lead them to that all-sufficient, all-empowering grace. That, God, you would use that weakness, that area of vulnerability, that struggle, that, God, you would use that to showcase your strength and your power in them. So, Father, I just pray for those individuals who would feel that weakness to that degree and to that depth this morning, Father. May they know your all-sufficient grace for them this day. Father, I also just pray for those of us, Lord, as we maybe have struggled with certain areas of weaknesses our whole lives, and God, maybe coming to that realization that this may never change, this may never go away, that, God, you would use that again to just tether us, God, that you would use that again to just link us, to draw us into that all-sufficient, sustaining grace. That, God, we would come back time and time again because of that area of weakness. And that, God, time and again, we would just rely on that all-sufficient grace. So, Father, wherever we may find ourselves this morning, I just pray that we would come to know your grace, your mercy, your strength, your power in our places of weakness. And in that, God, that we would use that as a place and a platform to give you all the glory and all the praise. And this we ask in Jesus' name.
Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.